It wasn't cluttered with anything from any medical perspective whatsoever. I was like, just like blank slate. And so they introduced a lot of those osteopathic principles. And to me, those were basically questions. They just totally captivated me. And that's my whole career. I'm still pursuing essentially the same questions with a couple add-ons that were presented to me in my first cranial seminar. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. It's here in the deep embrace of winter that the Chinese celebrate the new year, the spring festival. It's here in the cold and the dark that the seed of summer's heat stirs unseen beneath the ice and the snow. It's probably not lost on you that this life unfolds in cycles and rhythms. There's a pattern. And while from one perspective, it's a reliable cycle, we are not dealing with a circle so much as with a spiral. The seasons unfurl, but never quite in the same way. We cycle through issues in our lives, but not in the Groundhog Day way of, oh, this again. The issues may be the same, but we are not the same. What has gone before will be similar and yet different. It will be different as we bring all of our current experience to the issues that may be old, but it also confronts us as a new. I think there's a kind of wisdom in celebrating the spring while it silently grows out of the dark. It's helpful to remember that all gain holds the seed of loss. Love cannot arise without also bringing around the experience of loss in much the same way that birth engenders death and how understanding can deafen us to the messages from the unknown. The harvest brings the seed that brings the harvest. The solutions to today's problems in time create our new set of difficulties. This isn't a nihilistic lament. It's the recognition that we easily become attached to parts of the whole of life. Here at the new spin through the Chinese cycle of 12, I'm thinking about brutal Beijing winters and the soggy, bone-chilling Taipei Januaries as I look out on the bare trees and gray, washed-out sky of St. Louis. I'm thinking about the nouns of resolutions and the verb of resolve, how it feels to be at the beginning and wondering if I can hold a balance of hope and aversion in such a way that it allows for a moment of stillness, like the spring burst of wood energy roots itself in the barren cold, gathering for the moment in time when it ripens into the wild explosion of spring. I appreciate the Chinese perception that midwinter arouses the spring, that things begin before we notice they've begun, that there's an unseen world of pattern and motion that gives rise to manifest reality, and that if you learn to listen to that which is gathering, Perhaps it will enlist you in its unfoldment. I'm curious, what is the quiet whisper lingering at the edge of your perception? Are you open to its wordless call? In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation on presence, perception, and allowing ourselves to abide in that space between knowing, sensing, and being. The practice of medicine is not all about what we do. It's also informed by how we are. Our guest in today's conversation walked into a practitioner's office for a treatment and heard the guy mutter, hmm, not here as a patient, but a student. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation on learning and the unexpected turns of life. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. 
Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Michael McMahon, welcome to Geological. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to have you. You know, I usually go look at people's websites before I have a conversation because, you know, I just want to see what they're up to. So I noticed something on your website that 
no other acupuncturist has on their website. You have a what we are reading section. <laughs> we do. That's awesome. That that's the first thing you are uh, wanting to talk about. It, it's well, I just I just happened to notice that I you know I kind of like books myself, and and I thought you know it's like wow, what we are reading. That's cool. So. Okay, so I took a look and you got things on there. You got like polyvagal theory. You got the pocket guide to interpersonal neurobiology. Holy smokes, is that like a dating book or something? You got <laughs> I mean, if you want to use it that way, you can for sure. Could you? you probably oh, could, yeah, you, right? should, you could, totally. Okay, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Yeah. You got Rumi, you got osteopathy, you got some Dogen. Uh-huh. And you got Linda Berry. Yeah. Linda Berry. Yeah. All right. Linda Berry. MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, Linda Berry. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? How in the hell do you know about Linda Berry? That's what I want to know. I was in my first, I can't remember, my first or second year teaching at NUNM. And I teach the Chinese medicine students there, the palpation and perception series, which is the hands-on anatomy, basically. I didn't necessarily know how to teach, but I knew what I was teaching really well. And it didn't take me long standing in front of students to realize knowing the content and knowing how to teach were like two totally different <laughs> entities, right? That was like completely different. And I and I definitely don't I don't like not feeling really good about what I'm doing. Like that doesn't sit well with me. So it was a big puzzle. It was a huge question that I didn't know where to go to find the answer to. And we had this amazing dean at NUNM, Denise Dahlman, and I was working with her, but she was very traditional and like have your, you know, I can't even remember all the technical terms, but all your outcomes and all the stuff. And I was like, okay, I, I get that. That's important. I'll work on that. But it still wasn't helping me, you know, answer my question. It's so much that I went to her one day. I was like, I had really worked through it. And I was like, okay, well, I, I did this thing. But the two most important things to me, I don't see covered in this like schematic that you gave me. And she goes, well, what are those? Because she couldn't figure out how that couldn't be covered. And I was like, well, the two most important things to me at equal level are that students feel safe and that students have fun. And they didn't seem to be fitting into the like educational <laughs> paradigm that was presented to me. And so I was just holding this question and not knowing what to do with it. And I was in Powell's one day at Christmas break. I was in the education section and I was looking at the spines and I see this spine and in handwritten like glitter marker, it said syllabus. And I was like, that was the bane of my existence was figuring out how to create a syllabus. And I was like, oh my God, what is that? And I pulled it off and it was like a, it was basically a Mead composition notebook. And then it had this crazy art on the cover and it said Linda Berry and I'd never heard of her before. And I started looking at it and it just blew my doors off. I mean, it just blew my mind. It was like all her syllabi are handwritten on yellow legal paper. And she teaches at, at University of Wisconsin-Madison in their graduate, they have this graduate um, institute called the Institute of Discovery. And Ooh, these were her, Institute yeah. of Discovery, I, know, I was like, how do I get there? I know, I want a job there. Yeah, so I bought it and I just started, like, I, reading isn't even quite the right word to use for it. Because it's can't, like... You can't read that. No. and it, it's, it's not like, readable. No, it's like cartoons and like... Rumi poems and cognitive neuropsych and monsters. And, you know, I mean, it's like so off the wall. But, I mean, I read the whole thing and I, I loved what she was doing. I was like clearly not teaching comics or drawing or I wish I was teaching creativity, but I, I'm not. I mean, I am, but, but not explicitly. Or that's not the quote unquote outcome. I guess I am trying explicitly to teach that too. But 
she had all these questions that, you know, she had these, like in the very beginning, it was, she was writing about her teacher. And then she said that she realized with her work, she needed students to continue to pursue the questions that she was really pursuing her whole career. And there were a couple things right in that, that just struck me, which was one, just the idea of working, working in questions instead of answers, I think is like what our whole field is all about. And I feel super fortunate. I, you know, before I even knew anything, I had no training in anything at all. I lied my way into a cranial sacral seminar with the Upledger Institute because you're supposed to be a healthcare provider. Or you're supposed to be in a healthcare program. And I was neither. I was like sort of an uncertified individual. I mean, why did you even want to go do that in the first place, Mr. Uncertified? <laughs> it's like, what drew you to that? Holy smokes. Uh, I'm going to lie my way in. That's always a good start. Yeah, to I did. Adventure. I just like, they're like, you, you know, you're, are you in a healthcare program? I was like, yeah, sure. Sure. I'm pretty sure that nobody's going to check. Um, I, I mean, this is a whole other story. So we have two threads going here, but I was working in Northern California in the nineties at a therapeutic boarding school counseling teenagers. It didn't take me very long working in that program. We had like the, we would do these group group sessions three times a week and they'd get pretty powerful. And, you know, I realized I had some of my own issues that I had to go work out. I was still pretty young at the time. I was in my early twenties, grew up in Chicago. So, you know, I was like open-minded. I was a liter literature major, but in anything in the healing arts in the early nineties was not on my radar. That was not on my radar at all, but I was interested in helping people obviously. So I found a therapist and, you know, I was working with this therapist and I like simultaneously hated it and loved it. And pretty much every session I was like, I think I'm never going to come back. Actually. Yeah. Screw this. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you next week. Yeah. You, I like really like you. You're really helping me. I'm really intimidated by you. Uh, this sucks. Like I, you know, I was like all over the map. Yeah. Good. Sounds like you were doing good work. Yeah. And you know, that's what happens when you're in, by that point I was in my probably like late twenties, you know, and that's your, that's your attitude at that age. And eventually she was like, well, you should go see my husband. He's a body worker. And I was like, you know, I thought you've had good ideas up until this point, but that is like the most stupidest thing I could ever imagine somebody saying to me. And I grew up in Chicago. I was like, what's body? Like I'd had a couple of massages at like spas and I thought they were stupid. And I was like, I see no way that has any bearing on what we've been doing for the last couple of years. Kind of like walking into Powell's and going, what am I doing? I'm looking for something. Yeah, yeah basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, nice, nice connection there. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Eventually, I was like, okay, you know, I'm just going to go because so she quits hassling me about it. And, and she hasn't led me astray this far. And so I make an appointment and I walk in the room and it's this older guy. He's got this like classic like white beard, like, you know, down to his belly. He's bald. His room is just like crazy. It's really small. It's totally dark. There's like not one space in the room that doesn't have something on the wall or like little figurines on every shelf and all these books. And I was like, whoa, like, where did I just hell? end up? What the hell is going on? <laughs> and then he looks at me and he kind of has this like sideways quizzical look and his eyes are squinting. And I, you know, at that point, obviously I didn't know him. And then he mutters to himself, you're not here as a client. You're here as a student. And I was like, whoa. Hey. I was like, dude, I don't know why I'm here, man. I'm like, can I leave now? Or like, what? You know, I really didn't know anything about like people being psychic or whatever. I had no, I had no nothing. 
Because this guy from Chicago. Yeah, just like whatever. Yeah, it's like, are the Bulls on? You know, is Michael Jordan back from retirement yet? What's going on? And then I sat down and we started talking and like instantly I was like, wow, this guy's really cool and interesting and he was funny. And he was all the things that I didn't think somebody in that setting would be. Like he was, he was really real. He was down to earth. Medicine, funny. How does that go together? Yeah. Or body work or like quote unquote new age, but like a guy who like wasn't walking around in a white robe with a didgeridoo or, you know what I mean? Like he was like really like real and approachable and like I just right away was really drawn to him and then also felt like there was an openness or a safety or receptivity to deeper things and emotions and stuff like that so it was like it really struck me and then he worked on me and the first time he worked on me I was like oh my god I I mean I remember laying there and thinking to myself he he left and I was you know had some time before I changed. I was like, I need to understand everything that just happened here. Like it blew my mind. To this day, we're now we're best friends, and I worked with him nonstop. For I would go as much as he would let me come in to get treated for years. And he started. Yeah, I had to wrestle quite a bit before I was uh, ready to go to massage school. That was not that was not the career path that was sort of laid out for me growing up. So that that took a little bit of internal work, and you know, I was definitely was raised whether it was like a explicitly stated expectation it was definitely explicit that like going to massage school was not the career path (laughs) i argued with myself for several years before i went to acupuncture school i had an interest i had kind of a, a draw but I was like, what? I mean, and do they make enough money? And do I want to go back to school? I already got one master's degree. I don't use it. Wasted that time and money. You know, is this some weird hippie thing? Is, you know, I just, I mean, I argued for a long time before eventually. I mean, it sounds like you've had a similar experience. You kind of work your way into this thing that made no sense at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. No yeah, sense no, at the beginning. It was like, came out of left field. I mean, I was like, resistant to even getting a massage it wasn't even on my radar to go to massage school you know i mean i was thinking maybe i'd go get like a phd in in psychology or something like that like that was what i was you know and so now here you are with a wild bookcase online of (laughs) you know you're i mean you're you're psyche laid bare on your bookshelf pretty much like yeah i'm I'm nuts I mean, to go back, just the Linda Bear thing is amazing because that book blew my mind. And, you know, she had this other question that said, how are hands, images, and insight connected? And I was like, bingo. That's, like, that's, that's your thing. The, that's the best question ever. And so this idea of, of, of questions, like, it started when I first started studying the cranial work because that, that osteopathic perspective, you know, was the first thing I ever encountered. I wasn't, my mind wasn't cluttered with anything from massage school yet. It wasn't cluttered with anything from any medical perspective whatsoever. I was like, just like blank slate. And so they introduced a lot of those osteopathic principles. And to me, those were basically questions. They just totally captivated me. And that's my whole career. I'm still pursuing essentially the same questions with a couple add-ons that were presented to me in my first cranial seminar in like 1990, I don't even remember, 98 or something like that. Very potent questions. Yeah. Super potent questions. Yeah. 
And I think to be pursued by questions in our field is, I think that's like the, like I tell my students, like, look for your questions. Don't look for like your answers or something that you're going to know. Look for the questions that can guide you when things really are confusing, because that's the only orientation is, is, is good elemental substantial questions are, are the best guides we can have, I think. You know, it's such a paradox in the work that we do because people come to us, they're looking for answers. They're calling us because they've got a problem. They've not been able to solve it. They're looking for help with it. They want the problem resolved and they want an answer to the question of what the hell do I have and how do I get rid of it? I mean, I've had patients who, and I'm sure you have too, and people listening to this, they come in, they've been through this test, they've been through that test, they've seen all these practitioners, blah, blah, blah. We know the story. Nobody knows what's going on with me. I've had people say to me, I don't care if it's cancer. I just want to know what it is. I mean, there's this deep need that it seems that we have for answers. And yet, like you, I find that in my practice, Rather than going for the answers, if we can crack open potent questions, it takes people down a whole different path. And it takes me as a practitioner down a different path. Because when I run into an answer, I stop inquiring. I go, oh, it's like, it's like your car keys. It, they were in the last place you found them. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've really well said. I think that's I think that's it, especially, you know, more and more having the, the benefit of the perspective of been practicing for 20 years now and seeing trends that are, I don't, you know, I wish we were seeing different trends, but one of the trends that I think people are seeing is that cases are getting more complex and presentations are getting, they're just, they're, they're involving multiple systems in more complex ways and things that used to work to help people feel better in terms of lifestyle recommendations you know they just not, they're not quite as effective and patients are they get it they understand they're sophisticated like you said they've they've been everywhere so so they have a pretty sophisticated understanding of what's of their condition and maybe not exactly what's happening but at least of the condition and so approaching them you know from the position of like God, I don't know either, but I really want to work with you to help find a way that you can feel better within which within whatever it is that's occurring, then we can start to work with that. You know, I think there's a there's a great shift that I think is is starting to happen where we can. And this is where like the interpersonal neurobiology and the Stephen Porges work has been so helpful for me is it is in the framing. And if we can create frames for people where they can start to understand what's happening for them and understand kind of how they're feeling about what's happening that can create just a shift in in their qualitative experience of what their symptom picture is even if the symptom picture isn't changing yet mm -hmm. hello everyone and cecil sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Tell me more about that. How's that? How does that look in your clinic when that unfolds? I mean, it pretty much starts from the moment I, you know, start interacting with them. I guess I'm just sort of looking for sort of just their, like, just the total gestalt, like their nature. How are they presenting? Are they outgoing? Do they seem a little reserved? Just really get myself oriented. Like, who is this person? And, you know, we can tell you can pick up a lot, like, just from how they walk, how they present themselves. What's their frame of reference for what's happening with them? What's their frame of reference in their life? What are they into? Really looking for all of that stuff and, and starting to just make, a, make mental notes of that and then look for a frame around which we can sort of start to put what it is that's happening with them that can help them start to shift their perspective or that can be some, something catalytic just about their perspective, I guess is what I look for. And it's right. Each person then is different. I'm not fitting each patient into this always goes like this. It's, no, you it, know, it never would, always goes like this. No. So every conversation and every frame and every way of approach is going to be totally different based on that person. It's the beauty of Chinese medicine. Yeah. Oh is yeah. Is that totally. it gives us these fantastic tools for recognizing these kinds of differences between people. And that's, and so we can't really do a cookie cutter kind of thing. You know, if you're looking for cookie cutter, you should probably be looking for a different job. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Stephen Porgy's work has really helped me like really key. And so many people come in and they're just like, they're just straight up naming symptoms that you can basically place within that polyvagal uh, schematic so there are people are coming in more and more now saying like, oh, my, my throat constricts from the inside or there's like all these like what we would call in Chinese medicine, like these counterflow things. Right. But they're like the I have a patient that just we've had a couple of visits now that came in with like as soon as she goes to take an inhale, her diaphragm spasms and she had every test known. She's in her 30s. There's nothing wrong. And we had all these conversations identifying things in her childhood that were related to, to a climate that wasn't really receptive and open to her feelings. And so as she's going through a stage in her life where she's evolving, this kind of thing is coming up and it's expressing through that system is a little bit dysregulated. And so I can, I can orient myself based on the understanding from the polyvagal theory to these symptoms and then the interpersonal neurobiology comes in then as a way to start to see, well, how is this person basically feeling about how they feel? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Because Oh, it totally makes sense. I have patients come in, and I probably say this to people at least two or three times a week. 
Um, not because I'm trying to, but just because it, the, the situation arises and it, it seems appropriate. But they'll come in and they're complaining about some kind of thing that's going on. And I kind of take it in. I look at everything that's going on. And I say back to them, hmm, this thing that you think is wrong with you might not be the thing that's wrong with you. This thing that you think is broken about you might be your superpower. But you're like Spider-Man in that first movie where he was just learning to be Spider-Man. He crashed into a lot of buildings. What you're talking about really dovetails with my experience of people come in, they think they got this physical, or I'm using air quotes here, medical problem. They want to get that fixed. And yet it, there is something about it that is really helpful to them. It's, it's kind of a, a crisis of sorts. They're growing into another phase of themselves. There are things that are holding them back. And so they start running into problems. And, and often the thing that they think is broken is the thing that's going to help them break through. Yeah, and it, well, because it's the thing that their system was able to use in other times that was really helpful. So it, it's connected with a part of them that has the strength to endure and make it through really difficult situations. And then it's, and it's they're at a time in their life where that they can change that. They don't need to rely on exactly that, that aspect of it. But that's such a huge crisis because here's the thing that has reliably helped me get through right. maybe a decade or two of life. Yeah, or maybe the, all of the life that the person knows even, often. Yes, and, and that could be a long time. And yet that thing that was helpful is now the thing that's in the way. So I'd like to hear more about the polyvagal and, and how that plays into all of this. I've, I've just only recently started to cotton to the polyvagal theory. And it's, it's a bit mind-blowing to me at this point. I mean, I feel like you could take a super deep dive into it and like oh, never God. come up. I mean, I pretty much spent like the last year just like doing that. Like the only thing that I was studying for like the last year was all that stuff. I, and I mean, I think it's called the pocket guide to the polyvagal theory is I think the, it's done in like interviews uh, with people where poor Jesus talking about it is much more accessible. The actual book, the polyvagal theory is like pretty much unreadable unless you're a neurophysiologist, <laughs> which that's where I started. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> There's a lot of aspects to it. I think one, one thing that's really fundamental to that. I'm always, that I'm really, this is the thing that I'm initially and always paying attention to whether I'm teaching or with patients is this idea of neuroception and Porges presents that we have a um, this neuroceptive system that's that's always working like basically below the level of our conscious awareness to assess our our sense of safety. Do we feel safe or not? And that that everything else is proceeding from this assessment of safety. If I feel safe, then my certain nervous system kind of goes to this natural set point. All of our nervous systems have their own unique set point and probably multiple set points depending on different states that we're in. And then our nervous systems get tuned basically by the environments that we've grown up in, significant experiences that we've had. Everybody's neuroceptive system functions differently. Right. We, so we, have, we have a different imprint on that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so this starts to explain why you know, we're seeing more and more people that have real sensitivities in their sensory system so that they have be auditorily very sensitive to their sound environment 
Other people would be really sensitive to their visual environment, their smell environment. Some people, their sense of taste is, is really highly activated. And, and this can be connected to that, poly, that polyvagal system, that neuroceptive system, having a set point where its senses are a little more highly activated. And Porges is saying that the, the poly meaning we have, we share a vagal system with reptiles and then mammals have evolved a, a secondary vagal system and, and humans have evolved that a little bit even more in a more sophisticated way. For humans, evolutionarily, we needed to be able to form relationships with one another which meant we needed to be able to like focus, like you and I are focusing right now through the camera on one another, which means we need to suppress the other inputs that are coming into us from our environment so that we can make eye contact and I can, I can hear you and you can hear me. And so that, that a healthy vagal system actually suppresses the sensory inputs so that we can be connecting with one another. So it really in a sense, tunes our perception. Yes, exactly. 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 You got it. Exactly right. And, and so I think just this idea that like placing safety as primary and you would say, Oh, well, of course you have to feel safe. But I think it's not of course, because there's a lot of assumptions in our culture about what safe looks and feels like, but that may not take that person's unique nervous system into account. So we can't, we can't assume safety because people's experiences are so wide and varied and there's no way we can know what somebody's been through. So there's no way you can assume a certain situation feels safe to that person. So being able to watch for those visual cues and attend to the environment. I mean, I use this teaching all the time to be able to attend to the environment and, and watch students and, and, try to present everything in such a way that people feel safe. It goes back to what I said to that Dean that was, you know, working with faculty, uh, faculty development, like if students don't feel safe, they can't learn. Right. And it's hard to have fun if you're not safe. Yeah. So learning goes much better when you're having fun. Yes. And you learn more, you're more open things, things land more deeply, they stick more. And I think that's just a fundamental insight for just all of us walking around, just being a person. You know, it's like being person one-on-one, like feeling safe matters and being attuned to our own physiological signals about when we do or don't feel safe. Because I mean, I know this for myself, sometimes consciously, I'm like, why is my, you know, I've learned the physiological signals that my system sends when I don't feel safe and everybody's physiology sends different signals. It's not uniform. And so I've learned to pick up on those signals within my own physiology but consciously, I'll be like, I think I feel fine here. Why is this happening? Yeah. How but come I, have how to come honor I can't that. breathe? Yeah. But I have to honor that. That feeling is real and it's connected to something that matters. And then I can start to like put a little wedge of space in there and go, well, am, you know, what's really happening? Is this situation really a threat or is it echoing something that historically have been threatening, but in this current circumstance it actually isn't and then i can work with my own internal response and idea this is an ideal way that i can work with my internal response and not and not have to exit my environment or somehow you know manage the environment that i'm in so a lot of times when people come to see people like us um they're not feeling safe 
Yeah. Right? Because they're coming into a new situation. If it's the first time with acupuncture, it's like, oh, shit, here's somebody with needles. That's going to ramp up the anxiety a bit. Curious to know what it is that you attend to in your clinical work that lets you gauge if a person's feeling safe or not. Are there certain things that, that you're particularly paying attention to to assess where somebody is? And let's say that they're in a place where they, you've decided they're feeling you know, really ramped up and not safe. How do you help bring them into a quieter space so you can actually begin to do some work? we're all naturally good at watching, especially if we're, if we're making it a point of focus to watching all the nonverbal signs and symptoms of if somebody's feeling some kind of stress or not stress. And then also listening to the symptoms because a person may come in and start explaining, like as soon as, if I hear any symptoms around like breathing or swallowing, even if I'm not in that moment picking up on anything else around, around anxiety or fear or whatever, to me, that's kind of become a tell, actually, that there's something, something's trying to express itself through that system, that it's trying to resolve some issue of, of safety. And, or at least I'll start to explore, look for that. That will be in my awareness, definitely. In the intake, like watching the eyes, watching the swallowing reflex can be a real, a real indicator that, that something's happening that maybe even is below that person's level of conscious awareness watching, you know, skin coloration, skin color will flash. And then in the environment, so much paying attention to light, the tone of voice, like Porgy's really has brought up our tone of voice really matters. So using a soft tone of voice and, and actually letting your voice go up and down, like letting it lilt a little bit, really communicates safety to people. And then all those things that, that put that person in a position actually of, feeling empowered or feeling in control. So, you know, whatever it is that's going to validate their experience, like just looking for all those opportunities and there, you have to watch for it. They're so, they're subtle, but always deferring to that person's, that that person is going to define the encounter. And so always, always looking for and deferring towards permission being really explicit, letting like explicitly stating this is true in the classroom also, like at the beginning of a, any, at the beginning of a class or exercise or anything saying, this is what we're going to do, you know, really laying it out for people. People feel if people's systems are, are a little bit activated in this way, it feels so safe to them to just know what to expect. Right. Here's what's coming. And then you do it. Yeah. And then you say, this is what we did. Yep. And here's like always checking in, like, and knowing like your verbal check-in may, may result in reliable information, but you also have to be watching all the nonverbal signs. Oh man. I would say verb when it comes to verbal and patience, because most of them are trying to be air quotes here, the good patient. I'm not saying that patients lie, but I'm saying that patients often have a presentation that they want to give us or that presentation they want to give themselves. You know, sometimes patients want to be like, I want my doc, I want to make my doctor feel good. Totally. Right. I want to make my doctor happy. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, and I know this is true for myself. Sometimes if you ask me, I'm like, yeah, I feel fine. But if I'm paying attention to my body, my body's doing things that I know it does when I don't feel fine. And then also then the questions can go to, well, what's happening in your body? 
and, and getting them to start to identify and track that can be can be so helpful. I find it can be helpful at the same time. I find it can often be super, uh, I wasn't going to say not helpful, but difficult because asking people to go into their body and into their feeling instead of into their thought, they may not have a lot of experience doing that with somebody else present. Yeah, totally. And then that's where it's gauging all that from the moment they come in about how much body work have they had. From the moment I start working on them, I, you know, I'm starting to explore like how connected does it seem like they are with the, you know, what's their level of the quote unquote interoception, like how much can they feel? And then I have a, I have a thing that I do that clients inevitably will tease me for and make fun of me for and laugh at me for and, uh, and I'll take it. But I have this thing that I've developed, which is like a, it's sort of a subtle or actually probably not so subtle form of like positive hypnosis, basically. <laughs> so anytime there's a tissue change in an area where I'm working, I'll say out loud, like, oh, good job. Or I'll, I'll comment on it in just sort of a way that they don't have to say anything back. It won't be a question. It'll just be a comment. We all are naturally calibrated to pay more attention when somebody tells us we're doing something well. Like all, none of us have heard that too much that we're like how good we are. <laughs> I probably have not heard it too much. And most of us are quite reactive to the opposite, which is you screw up and yeah, and right. Or like, a, God, you're so tense or, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. those other things that I think we can say and not mean to do, not mean to, you know, to maybe be not as, as supportive as we could be. But, but when tissue changes and I comment, I say, wow, good job. Or, well, you know, I just make, I make a positive comment about it people naturally pay attention to whatever just happened. We don't ever have to talk about it. Their brain automatically is going to go, oh, he just said I did something good. What did I do? And then he's like, well, he's working in this area. Their brain is naturally going to go pay more attention. And that process over multiple sessions is going to build up their interoceptive system. And so they're going to become more aware of their internal environment, of their felt sense which is then something we can continue to work with. So it really depends person to person how much I'll push that. Some people are really sophisticated and you can do a lot of, you know, pretty amazing work with that. And other people, it's equally amazing to have somebody, which was me when I started in all this, like somebody had to work on me and teach me how to develop my interoception and work on me and get me to be like, oh, wow, yeah, I could feel that release. Or, you know, I can feel like, oh, you start to do that. And I'm starting to feel these feelings or, you know, the, that, that whole spectrum, we're all in different places on that spectrum at different times in our lives. And so helping people to make that contact in ways that don't require them to feel like they can't do it, I think is, is an important part of our job, actually. Yeah. What happens for you and your patients when they start to have a little more fluency with their would you call it interoception? Yeah. Interoception mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And what they run into is some stuff that's pretty fearful or frightening or traumatic. That, then that, like, this is where the, the interpersonal neurobiology has been so instructive to me. Bonnie Badenock, who was a student of Dan Siegel's, wrote this incredible book called Being a Brainwise Therapist. It's really, it's written for therapists, but it's, I think it's really easily applicable in our settings also. And it's how to use those insights in clinical encounters. And 
when whenever that happens, I, to me, that's a time to really like actually pause and check in because it isn't necessarily about the person going into all those feelings. It's more about them feeling like they can touch into those. They can have like, oh, that's coming up and I can be in charge of my experience of that. And so then I start to look for, that's where I start to really look for empowering that person to put the brakes on. I will always put more brakes on than less because, because I think being more conservative in that moment is healthier for the person because as that starts to happen, we're into a neural network that's connected probably with a lot of difficult experiences for that person. And so if then they can touch that neural network in a setting that feels safe with another person and they can be in charge of modulating the experience, that's really healing. And that experience enters into that neural network that historically has been painful and starts to change it. And so 20 years ago, it was definitely the, the idea was like, oh, help people have all those feelings and that discharge is really healthy. And thankfully, I think we're coming around to that's probably not exactly, exactly the goal. And it's more the goal to touch on them in settings that feel safe and be able to modulate the experience. So it sounds like you're titrating in safety. Yes. And especially in the presence of things that have been mm -hmm. historically difficult. So having safety and I think um, agency. Agency. Tell me, you're the second person like in the past 24 hours that I've talked to who used that term agency. <laughs> really cool. Yeah, I'm just, just noticing that. So when you think about agency, what are, you, what are you cottoning to? I use imagination a lot in my work. And like I, we have to imagine ourselves into what was the system experiencing at whatever time these different scenarios occurred, if things were threatening or really challenging to a system, there's a, on some level, what becomes really challenging is to feel like we don't have agency in a certain situation. If we're a young person and we're growing up in a household that doesn't feel safe, we don't have agency. What are you going to do? Like walk out and go feed yourself. You don't have any, you don't have the agency to change your situation. And so I think agency is, is underneath a lot of things that people are trying to, trying to integrate and be able to respond differently in their, in their present lives. So when people encounter that place where the, where the content is or the feelings are, if they can experience agency in the presence of that feeling, I think that's very therapeutic. Sure. And as, as an adult, you probably have a lot more agency than you did when you were eight years old because you can feed yourself and you can clothe yourself and you can pay your bills. I mean, hopefully you can do all these things. And to recognize that you have that in the presence of a feeling where you didn't have it, that would change things, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, you know, can be super high functioning in our current lives and still have arenas you know, either in our professional or personal life where we don't feel agency, whether, whether there's systemic or power situations or in intimate relationships because of patterning that we have, people struggle to give voice to their real feelings. There's the, the, I think that issue is actually a little bit more, you know, is current for a lot more people a lot of the time. 
And it takes a certain amount of vulnerability to just say like, oh, actually, I don't feel like I have agency right now. Mm-hmm. I think it would be super helpful to be able to recognize that, to be able to come to a moment where it's like, oh, this again, nope, I'm going to push that back down, but to have something come up and recognize, oh, I have agency, I actually have some skills, I have experiences that I can bring to this now, let's just work on this top layer, let's just bring that in to this piece at this moment. Yeah, and so that's our, like, our environment and our relationship with the patient can be a place where then they can practice that agency where it's safe. And so that's why I'm like, the more times I let a patient, not let, the more times like it's the environment, the relationship really supports the patient in, in like really being in charge of the pace of what we do, that is supporting that person, whether we're even addressing it or not, it's practice. And we all need that practice in places where the stakes don't feel as high to be able to do it in the settings where the stakes feel really high, which are probably in our most intimate relationships or in some sort of professional setting where like, you know, your livelihoods at stake or, you know, there's, there's different explicit or implicit power structures or, you know, where people encounter lots of different scenarios that where agencies are real, it's a real issue. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I'm noodling on a contradiction Mm -hmm. that comes out of my clinical experience. And that is, I mean, what what we're talking about makes sense to me Mm -hmm. and and to some degree unfolds in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes going slow is going to get you somewhere further and faster than, quote, going fast. But often people come to us because they've got something and they really want to get rid of it. It's like I've got this elbow pain and I want you to get, you know, I want to get rid of the elbow pain. But if that elbow pain might be attached to some of this other stuff, going fast on getting rid of the elbow pain might not be as helpful because we've glossed over this other material that's actually trying to emerge. So one of the questions that I have, and I don't, I don't have an answer for this. We were talking about the power of questions earlier. So one of the questions I have is, am I doing my patients a disservice sometimes 
by taking away the thing that's bothersome to them because that actually isn't going to help them in the longer run. And who am I to even make that judgment in the first place? Yeah, totally. I've come to a place where I, I pay more attention to pacing than I ever have in my practice and in my teaching, actually. I've just started going slower and slower, actually, and trying to, you know, I don't know if doing less is always, if, if I'm really honest, I'm not necessarily trying to do less, but I may pace things out more slowly and to, to allow more to unfold within each moment, which, which then I really like one of the osteopathic principles that touched me deeply and hasn't left at all is that, is that we just trust the body to be our guide and we try to develop as many reliable ways of listening and following that as we possibly can, which like I'll go to my last treatment I ever give and not, not come to the end of that road of being able to be guided by the body. I mean, that's, that's the number one question always is like, you know, McMahon, are you just like following things that you've learned over time are reliable and effective? Or are you really listening to this person's body? You know, and, and a lot of the times I'm failing my own, you know, one of my own principles. I'm not doing as good as I would like to be doing. I think we fail our own principles often. Yeah. They're, they're um, good principles then. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I have found, and I love the feeling of, oh, I get this, I understand it, I'm, I'm being helpful to somebody, I know what to do. For me as a practitioner, it's a great feeling. I like that, it helps me get through my day. Mm -hmm. The problem for me in those moments as a practitioner, I'm not speaking for the patient right now, I'm just speaking for me, is I probably don't learn anything new. I'm going with something that I've, that I've learned, I know it, it can be helpful, it's workable in this situation, but again, without the questions, just leaning on the answers, now I've abandoned the inquiry. What else could I have learned had I stayed present to that inquiry? Yep. You know, I think going back to like to the elbow example, I think I got to take a class with Dr. Upledger and, and he said something that really I, I thought was really smart and it's, it stuck with me was that kind of when it comes to these kinds of things, there, there's a spectrum and we have to be careful to not get too attached to any, any specific place on that spectrum. And some things kind of can just be elbow pain. And some things are much more tied into a whole tapestry of, of scenarios and experiences for a person and, and trying to learn how to gauge that with people then becomes, becomes the thing. Like sometimes yeah, this maybe is pretty straightforward and it's okay. And it'll just, it'll just get better. And sometimes no, nah, it's actually not. And, um, let's, let's see what's happening here. Like, let's look at it more. And I think, I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough or it's counter to the current conversation about evidence-based medicine and like, well, and how few visits can this person get better? And, and it's like, oh, I, I totally get that. I'm not saying that, like, I'm not advocating for some, like, oh, make people just keep coming in when they don't need to come in. But I guess what I've seen, because I've had the benefit of practicing for a long time, is having a relationship with patients for years allows you to work with them through, through the course of their lives and see much longer patterns, even if one issue is resolved they're coming in for another thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, after seven years, it's like, wow, there's this pattern of the way my body 
responds to these injuries. I just had this happen with a patient where they made between their own contemplative work and work that we were doing on the table, made this incredible realization about beliefs that they'd absorbed from their father when they were really little that were about how their body would heal slowly from things that, you know, maybe should heal quicker. And it was like really profound, but part of what allowed for that was this thread of relationship that we've cultivated for probably seven years of working together. Yeah. So sometimes it is fixing, air quotes, fixing that recalcitrant joint. And so often we don't know the downstream effect of our treatment for people because they it either didn't help them and they didn't come back or it helped them and they didn't come back. We're sitting there going, what happened? We don't know. And But if they come back again later for something else, like you say, we have this thread of experience with somebody. It also helps us because we can begin to see how certain things are connected. And, and that helps us as practitioners. Yeah. And I mean, our, you know, a lot of our work is, is pattern recognition, but sometimes, sometimes patterns occur in much different time arcs than, than 60 minute increments or a four session, you know, treatment plan. Like the timing is, is of its own ilk. It's not, we don't get to determine that. Right. The timing. That's such a, uh, I've got a friend who is an acupuncturist, also studied a lot of osteopathy and it seems like every time we talk, we talk every now and then, but he's, it's like, he's always reminding me about tempo because I tend to move fast and he tends to move slow. And it's generally super helpful for me to be reminded that there is this tempo that's going on beyond what I want and beyond what the patient wants. There's kind of a rhythm in the background. And I ignore it at my peril because, you know, I'm trying to get stuff done. I'm trying to get people in and help them and da, da, da. And so there's, there's that thing of being busy and, and having an active practice. And then there's that piece of being like super still in the midst of all the noise. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I was speaking towards when I said like over over the years of both studying our work and then I kind of like, I study my practice. Like I study like how am I working and what's happening and then incorporating all the new stuff I, I'm learning and kind of always, always reflecting on, on the process. But I've just come to this place of like, you know, if I'm holding my hands and doing a myofascial technique with somebody and it, I'm there for, for what feels like a long time, in a way, if I think about not that person's mind and not my mind, but that person's body consciousness and their nervous system and the, the gestalt of their life, those extra moments there might be just so precious. It might be an opportunity that that system has never had in its entire existence to be with whatever that place feels like for that amount of time to allow something to unfold. And so I've just learned to like, if I feel like something's happening in the tissue that feels meaningful, then just stay there. Even if it feels like some crazy long amount of time that it feels boring or whatever, it's going to be, it's probably going to be good for that, like that person's body. One of the questions that we talk about in classes a lot is how is the body experiencing itself? 
Mm, not that's how, a great question yeah not Ooh. like what are all the models that we use to explain the body to us say that is happening but what given all that we can bring to bear from anatomy and physiology and chinese medicine insights and all the different fields and just what we know about natural systems how might that body be experiencing itself in this moment and how can we respond to that in the most respectful way to that system like that's and then usually the answer to that is slow down <laughs> right like usually the answer is like give me a chance give me a chance here like wow you found something really awesome give me a chance to like be with that like and we know meant to, we know like if we're talking and you bring up something where i'm like whoa that's awesome I hadn't really thought of that in that way. What am I'm going to pause? There's going to be a natural pause where I'm going to start like grokking that. And in that pause and in my working with it is going to be where some new insight arises. So the pause, I think, is the key. You know, or that's that's where the opportunity is. Creating those pauses is really uncomfortable. I mean, I'm like, I am the, one of the things that scares me the most teaching or working is that somebody might be bored. Like I have like a mortal fear of being boring. And when I first was first learning myofascial work and trying to integrate it into my practice, I was terrified that people were bored and, and were like wondering what I was doing and thinking I was wasting their time. And it was awful. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was awful, but I, I believed in it and. I felt it was important, so I, I pushed myself, but it sucked. <laughs> it's, not, it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. Yes. I, I think there's a lot of times in our work for us it's not comfortable, but because we're the professional, it's our job to gain some comfort with, with the uncomfortable. And if we can gain some comfort with the uncomfortable, I suspect that helps our patients because they're in the presence of someone who can handle uncomfortableness, right? And, and, you know, as you were talking about that pause and you're talking about that moment where people kind of get something, to be able to get it and to have the pause for it to unfold and have it happen in the presence of another human being who's attending is a huge thing. It's one thing to have your own insight by yourself walking through the woods. It's a whole other thing to have something happen in the presence of somebody else. Yeah, especially if it's connected to something that's, mm -hmm. that's somewhat activating. Then that's really a positive experience. Yeah. yeah. Man, I thought we were going to talk about some acupuncture and fascia, <laughs> but... We are. Uh, um, <laughs> like you said, anybody can stick a needle in, but it's what's the context within which you're doing that, that needling? What's the, what's the story that's unfolding each time you, you have that encounter? Yeah, but we've just we've just touched in a bit. But I, I would actually love to talk with you more about fascia. Yeah, totally. Um, but so we're going to have to do that another day. All right. So we can all come right. back for part two. But before we finish today, yeah, I do want to know how the pocket guide to interpersonal neurobiology can help you in the dating world. Oh, man. Well, I, I can't say that I've had tangible success necessarily with that, but... So in all seriousness, it's, it's a brilliant reference book. It's, a, it's an incredible book. Dan Siegel did a great service the way he put that book together. But it's a book to how we all work. And you read it, you can understand your patients, but you're going to 
inevitably, as soon as you start reading it, you're like, oh, I'm, I do that. Or, oh, that helps me understand something about myself. Or, oh, I recognize that other people do things like that and that it might mean this to them. So it opens the door really to just being much more understanding of all kinds of behaviors that we see all the time. And I think, you know, who doesn't find that attractive? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you could be more in touch with who you are, that's probably attractive to other people. And I think, and I think more understanding, like really like what, what comes back around and this word gets used a lot, but you know, ultimately like that becoming more aware and understanding is, is really just is saying being more compassionate, but in like a really not as like, you know, some like platitude, but like actively compassionate. You know, which means as a teacher, really paying attention to the like to the lighting and to all the different learning styles in the room and all the different preferences and and validating all those differences, then that that's an active form. And so that that field of interpersonal neurobiology, I think, just unpacks like this is what's happening. This is how we we all work this way. And the more conversant we can all be with that the more we can be building an understanding and accepting culture that's tolerant of all those differences. And, and then that becomes safe. And then there, then there you go. We, we've created a different cycle. Fantastic. I look forward to our next conversation. Before we wind down today, if people are interested in seeing more about what you're doing or maybe take some classes, tell us just quickly about your offerings and how they can find you on the interwebs. Cool. Thank you. Um, so the offerings, I have um, three active curriculums right now that, that actually all interrelate around the themes that we've been talking about. There's a three-weekend cranial sacral therapy series. There's a series in myofascial release and a series in um, visceral fascial techniques. And then we're on the web at movingmountaininstitute.com. Great. I'll make sure it's all on the show notes page. Michael, yeah. thanks for your time today. This has really been delightful. Hey, thank you. It was really fun to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. I think that Michael McMahon is the first practitioner I've run across who has a bookshelf of recommended reading on his website. You know, looking at someone's books will tell you a lot about the person. And Michael's bookshelf is worth a look if you're up for a wide variety of inspiration. If you enjoyed this conversation, do check out his website. It's one of the most inviting acupuncture websites I've run across, too. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.